Thanks, Kristen. Appreciate you. All right, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap uh, before moving forward. I know some of you guys are joining us, maybe for the first week, you're back, uh, school starting up again. And so we've been going through emotionally healthy spirituality. We have sets of books in the back. And it's not too late to buy one because I hope this material will help shape your rhythm and how you think about spirituality for years to come, especially the devotional, which we'll spend some time in, is so important for us to start integrating into our spiritual life. The whole premise here from Pete Scazzaro is that a contemplative spirituality plus emotional health allows us to grow spiritually. And both of those things in many ways are neglected in evangelicalism. We, uh, we move super fast. We do a lot. We're, we're really active. But contemplation is actually about slowing down and being with Jesus, allowing space in order for us to know ourselves and know him and, and enjoy being soul to soul with him, enjoy being merry, and, and to allow all of our marthering to come out of being merry. And emotional health is about knowing ourselves and going deep within ourselves, um, our desires, our motivations, our family of origin. And as we know ourselves, we are allowing Jesus to know and transform those aspects of who we are. When we don't know who we are, we can't invite Jesus into that. And so um, one of his challenges in, in the book is helping us think about how much of our lives is comprised with activity versus contemplation. Do we live out of our schedule and busyness, the expectation of our family and work? Or is our life rooted in being with the Lord and hearing his voice and allowing contemplation and being with God to um, be as much a part of how we move forward as activity, right? That both are hugely important in our lives. You know, I think about, again, Mary and Martha. Mary is someone who sits and, and loves being with Jesus. But Martha, even in serving Jesus, misses him. And that's our first sermon. You could uh, podcast it if you want. And that really sets the tone and theme of, of our whole series and hopefully our whole year. How do we spend time being with the Lord and have that, uh, have our activity and our life come out of that? And so here's some of the kind of growth in contempt contemplative spirituality. We kind of first all start by just talking at God, you know, but some of us don't grow out of that. Our whole prayer life is talking at God or talking with God. I, have, I remember sitting down with someone at a coffee shop who talked at me for an hour and 23 minutes. I think I got seven minutes in. I'm not sure. It could be five, right? And I was just thinking to myself, if the person across the cafe swapped with me, let's say she's like a Latino woman in her 50s, I don't think anything would change in this conversation. Like, I don't think any, it doesn't matter who's sitting in front of this person, he would just talk and talk and talk and I have no bearing on, on this relationship, right? It, it's like 90% of him talking. But when I think about my conversations with the Lord, right, when you think about your prayer life, is it just you talking at God? Is it just, is, if you were to take hour by hour your conversations, is it 98% you and 2% maybe him? And, and is there even like a concept that you're talking to God 
Or could you replace this conversation with another friend or your parent or someone off the street? He's just a sounding board. As we grow in contemplative spirituality, we're trying to go from talking at God to talking with God to listening to God. And, it, and that's something, again, we, we don't practice much in our society as a whole, uh, even Christendom, because it takes silence to listen to his voice. We know he doesn't speak violently and he doesn't yell at us, right? For Elijah, he didn't come into fire or the earthquake or the storm. He came in a whisper. And what does it take to listen to whispers? It takes a quietness in our soul. It takes us shutting out noise. It takes us being attentive. And we don't do that very well in our, in our, um, in our culture. And then also there's being with God. And that's been such a blessing to me because I've done listening to God adequately over the last few years. But sometimes it's very frustrating because maybe he's not speaking and am I just wasting my time? Or maybe he is speaking, but maybe it's my own thoughts. You know, it's, it's hard to really hone in on this is the voice of the Lord. Uh, at times I do feel like I walk away feeling inspired by him. But other times I walk away frustrated. I think the cool thing about being with God is that that middle space of uncertainty or silence is actually the apex of why we sit with the Lord, that we simply get to be soul to soul with him. And I remember describing this two weeks ago, saying, man, those, those people in our lives that we really love, that we really enjoy, it's marked by silence, isn't it? It's marked by sitting on the couch and we don't need to fill the space because just being with each other is enough, is good. And what, what does that look like as we are with the Lord? So as I think about my own growth and contemplative the, uh, spirituality, I think about the silence, uh, the benefits of silence and being with the Lord. That slowing down gives me a great, greater awareness of myself. You know, if I slow down, I'm like, man, I'm stressed, or I'm tense here, or I'm actually grieving something. I, I think that might be the hardest part of silence and solitude, and why we avoid it the most is because we're carrying something in our soul, and we don't want to sit with it. We don't want to sit with uh, guilt and shame of this last sin. We don't want to sit with our angst. We don't want to sit with that regret that's followed us around. And so even when we're by ourselves, we're spending time with a fictional friend on Netflix, or we're filling our, our ears with noise, or we entertain or we numb because we're not comfortable in our own skin. We're not comfortable with ourselves. And I think that hardest and maybe most beneficial part of Silence of Solitude is that we make ourselves right with us and with the Lord. That we could sit in front of the Lord and ask for forgiveness or to carry things that are too heavy. Or we just kind of start to take inventory of our own souls. And you know, you know when someone's kind of comfortable with who they are because they get to be present with you. And maybe that's the greatest gift to give another person where you have kind of made right with yourself. You like yourself again. You don't mind sitting with you. 
You don't mind sitting with the Lord, and, and so you sit with someone else in a totally different way. Because I know that when I feel disappointed in myself or anxious, when I feel guilty and I sit in front of another person, what's happening? I'm hiding, right? And, and then when I'm hiding, I'm presenting something that's untrue. Or I have to entertain them. Or if I don't like myself, I care very much about whether they like me. If I feel deeply accepted and known by God, if I feel comfortable in my own skin, I don't, I don't need your approval anymore. And then I could actually be more real with you. I don't have to hide from you. This wonderful gift of silence and solitude of being with God allows us to be present with others. It allows us to have peace as we, again, say, God, your yoke is, is easy and your burden is light, and will you carry these things with me? Will you carry the things that I'm not supposed to carry? How do I surrender that to you? And then how do I live in your purpose instead of the pressure and expectation of others? When we live out of our busyness, we, we fill our schedules and God hasn't filled it to the brim like that. God hasn't, carried, hasn't asked life to crush us in the same ways of when we take on the expectations of ourselves, of our family and our friends. So when we're, when we're right with the Lord and we sit with him, we, we live in precision and purpose and we carve the fat out of our lives. There's towns where Jesus, where Jesus is being begged to stay in. People expect him to heal more, to teach more, to be there longer. And he's like, God's called me to another city. And there's places where he's being rejected and he stays because God wants him to be there. And he just lives life with one focus and an ear towards the Lord. And there's, this, there's, this, there's freedom there. I think out of all the things I hope for us out of this series is that we would do that devotional book day by day. It's really the cornerstone and crux of, of all that comes out of this next two weeks, that we would sit in silence before the Lord, that our devotional time would be about primarily listening to him, that we would, we would enjoy being with ourselves because we're surrendering all of us to the Lord and we see him know us and love us in deep ways. His eyes would pierce us. And then the second aspect of this book is emotional health. So we talked about contemplative spirituality plus emotional health, right? And so emotional health is this is very, a big part of that is self-knowledge. The heart in the Bible is speaking about our true self, the reality of who we are. And Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it that there's the reality of our own souls, and yet we know that there's a deception and a separation that we could live oftentimes in our false self, presenting a version of ourselves to others. But also we could live in a false self between me and myself, right? That I can actually present myself uh, in a way that is untrue. And I've seen myself and others where we build our whole value on this one thing we do well, and when it gets fractured, we feel totally unhinged. And we could also have a false self in the way we present ourselves before the Lord. And then there's a hidden self. There's aspects of who we are that we're not, we ourselves are not even aware of. And again, last Sunday, as we looked at the Samaritan woman, we started to excavate our hearts a little bit 
to not just see the sin that we're struggling with or the idols that we chase after, but to ask deeper questions like, what is this well water satisfying in my soul? Or in other words, what is this sin doing for me? Every sin has functional value for us. As grotesque as some of them are, they still do something for my soul, right? And it's filling an aspect of my heart, even though in the end it leaves my heart more corroded and the moment we feel filled, we don't feel lonely anymore. We're not struggling with rejection. We can forget our sadness. We can find value in this other thing. And so when we delved into the conversation of the Samaritan woman and Jesus' conversation with us as well, we understood that, man, when you get underneath some of those barriers we put up, we see the fractures from which there is longing out of our heart for the well water, for the sins and the idols. And how do we ask the Lord to fill those fractures in our life? And most of those fractures come out of our family of origin. And that's really where um, Pete Scazzaro takes this next chapter. And so that was the intro, by the way. We're just starting a sermon. I know you're hoping that would be done. Um, so we do a question every Sunday at the beginning of the sermon. Think about that. Um, 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 trying to get us to just talk to each other and hopefully pray for each other at the end. So what is, what is a good and bar, bad part of you that has been shaped by your family? And when I did this in CM, it was easy just to look at our family and say, here are some things that I like and dislike about my family. But that's not really the question. I'm asking, how has your family shaped you in a positive and a negative way? Some of you are seeing with your parents, and it's awkward. Feel free to get up and, and go somewhere else in the room. If you had a magic wand, what would you change about your family? Okay, so if you can, please just get into groups of twos or threes. Make sure there's no one left out. I'm going to give you a few minutes, and then we'll come back up and finish and start the sermon. So welcome back, more or less. Thanks for being willing to engage with each other. I know it's like, again, one of those more vulnerable questions, but, um, but I think it's good to think about how our family has shaped us because so much of our society talk about us in a very individualistic way. Like we're totally separated from our parents and the things that affected them doesn't affect us. And, and that's a very Western perspective, right, of individualism. But I think um, when we look at scripture, we see the depths in which our family is integrated into our life. And so um, I'm just quoting from the book here. It says, when the Bible uses family, it refers to our entire extended family over three to four generations. It includes all of your brothers, sisters, uncles, aunties, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-uncles and aunts, and significant others going back to the mid-1800s. I don't know how many of us can track our family that far, but they are still influencing us. They're still a part of us. God, in giving the Ten Commandments, connected this reality to the very nature of who he is. You shall not make for yourself an idol, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the, the children for the sins of their fathers to the fourth and 
third generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations um, of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God has a heavy integration in, in family. And when you look at scripture, um, you don't see a lot of people go outside of their communal context. When you read the book of uh, the first and second kings or chronicles or judges or Joshua, there's this big communal movement towards God or away from God. And to think that we can just kind of swim upstream, um, again, is, is, is not really uh, given to us in scripture. Let me give you a few more examples, again, from this book. We see these family patterns play out in the patriarchs of our faith, of the father of the Israelites, uh, Abraham, all the way through to four generations. So a pattern of lying in each generation. Abraham lied twice about Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage was characterized by lies uh, as Rebekah's kind of instructing Jacob to lie to uh, Isaac. Isaac. Jacob lied to almost everyone. His name means deceiver. Uh, ten of Jacob's children lied about Joseph's death, faking a funeral and keeping a family secret for more than 10 years. Favoritism by at least one parent in each generation. Um, Abraham favored Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau. Jacob favored Joseph and then later Benjamin. And then this was interesting as well. Brothers experiencing a cutoff from one another. Isaac and, Ish, and Ishmael, Abraham's sons, were cut off from each other. Jacob fled his brother Esau and was completely cut off for years. And Joseph was cut off from his ten brothers for more than a decade. An unawareness of our family of origin's impact is an unawareness of self. So as we seek to grow and emotionally healthy, again, it's, it's a huge part of that is understanding who we are. And when we hear that from a Western perspective, it's, it's me. But when we think about that biblically, it's four generations up. Do we have a good grasp of what's going on in our lineage and how that impacts our life? Right? My family, uh, both my grandparents have diabetes. And so I, I need to be aware of that and, and be careful about my sugar intake, about how I exercise, because there's a real threat for me to have diabetes. Me not knowing that diabetes runs in my family or pretending it's not there doesn't make, it makes it more difficult for me to be healthy, right? I'll more likely have diabetes if I'm unaware of it. And so just because you're not aware of your family issues, just because you're not aware of the patterns that have gone on in your family, doesn't make you um, necessarily able to disconnect from that baggage. It probably makes that baggage more subtle and deep, and you're not able to process and understand it. Does that make sense? Like, we're, we're not as individual as we think. And the people who think they are, it's often just a fresh coat of paint, right? Our, our, maybe our parents struggle with gambling uh, with stocks, and I do poker, and so I just think, oh, it's different. Or someone, or my kid gambles with his life by, you know, um, doing really stupid things on the street with a motorcycle. Um, it's just a different coat of paint. Or my, maybe my parents have a codependent relationship, and I'm like, oh, that's terrible, but then I start doing that with my child right? And I, I don't make the connection. 
Or maybe my mom and dad uh, withdraw when they fight. And so I'm withdrawing from all my friends in confrontation, and I don't know why. I think it's because of them. But it's actually because I have a whole pattern of withdrawal. So all right, we, we need to be careful with what addictions are a part of our family line. Right? If, if your family has always struggled with alcoholism, you need to be, it's not that you can never touch alcohol, but you should probably be extremely careful, much more than I need to be. But I need to be a lot more careful at the casino than you need to be, right? So there's this, as we are aware, we're able to uh, be able to break some of the patterns of addiction, of abuse, um, relationships. How are, how did, I noticed that there's a lot of family members, as I thought about this, that they might not have gotten a divorce, but they're not intimate at all, like uh, married couples. They sleep in separate rooms, and they, they don't know how to connect emotionally. And I'm like, man, with me and Nina, is that a model that I need to be super conscientious of and say, how do I continue to connect with my wife and be vulnerable with her? Because there's places in my soul that wants to isolate and be alone. Um, how we how we um, do conflict is often passed down, very apparently, right? If our family is explosive, uh, our parents we're probably going to be explosive, and our kids will probably be explosive. If our family is about emotional withdrawal and like um, not not allowing you to have love, withdrawing love and withholding, then that's often how we portray ourselves in conflict as well. Our values and beliefs are deeply ingrained, you know? Uh, most of us have, I would say all of us probably, have some type of prejudice against another ethnicity. And, and, and we've been really kind of in our nation, right? It's like either you're a racist or you're not. Everyone has prejudice. And I think it's more important for us to just say, man, we all have prejudice, but how do we rectify that in relationship? Um, when we don't understand our history, we often project. Um, if we had a terrible authority figure in our family who was dominant or abusive, any type of authority figure we have after that, we portray, we see dominance even when it's not there, right, or abuse. And so um, in this book, Pete Scazzaro kind of just does this really surface-level uh, tools. He just shotguns tools at us, right? A little bit of diagnosis there. Uh, a genogram, which, you know, uh, psychologists uh, take multiple classes on. Tons of books are on that, right? But he gives us two pages. And I get it. Like, he only has one chapter. He talks, uh, he gives us a verbiage, which is helpful. Differentiation. Do we have a separation between our parents' wants and desires versus our own? Are we comfortable with not blending um, wants and desires and beliefs of our parents and having differentiation there. Scripts, we've all been handed down scripts by our parents. And are we able to delineate their voice from our own? Are we able to say that this is a cultural script that's actually non-Christian and, and anti-Christian? And other cultural scripts are actually uh, biblical, right? And support uh, Christian culture and what the Lord wants for family. But we've all been handed scripts about money, 
Money is where you find security. Your bank account is a numeric value for yourself. We've been handed scripts about our education. We've been handed scripts about, again, other eth ethnic groups, other poor people. Are they just poor because they're lazy, right? Or have they just been a proverb your whole life as you pass by someone on a freeway? Your dad's like, that's why you can't fail fifth grade. And I'm like, but I failed fifth grade. Um, you know, like, what are the scripts that you've been given? And as I look at this book, I think there's a fear because these things take years to unravel. And even when you understand it, it takes years to, like, heal from it. So sometimes it's nice not to know everything at once because you can't work on everything at once. So it just takes a lot of, of help in order for us to be able to delve deeper into our family history, especially if we come from something more complex, a divorce, abuse, uh, addictions. And so Kelsey Chang sitting in second row, uh, Benedict Choi, uh, Janet Choi's husband, and Hiroko Shea, Mark Shea's uh, wife, they're all uh, therapists and have gotten masters in, and done personal one-on-one -on -one therapy. They're not able to do that for you, but uh, um, they will answer questions you have, um, and they will be able to give you resources, okay? So please don't walk up to Kelsey and just start dumping on her. Like, I don't want to see, like, everyone line up and Kelsey have to, like, go through therapy with everyone for free, okay? Kelsey, say no. But they can answer some questions. They can... Uh, counsel you as a friend, and they can also give resources. What, my favorite resource that I want to give is uh, Evie Free Fullerton, uh, our, grand, our grandmother um, church. They have an amazing counseling center. And not everyone is a licensed therapist, but they all have been through extensive training, and it's free, Evie Free. So uh, I don't know why that's funny. Oh, you thought it was funny? Okay, good. I was regretting it right away. Like, that's dumb. People laughed. Because it's dumb. Okay. Anyways, please go and take advantage of that resource. I can give you uh, more information. You can go on the website. But there's a many resources. Um, and if, you're, if money is a barrier, um, we, we, we'll be able to make some recommendations. But when we go into, again, theology, the Bible, um, what it looks like for our church to bring healing, I think about Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 to 50. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And what he's saying is that there's a new family we're adopted into when we become Christian. A family that's to redeem some of the family experiences that we've had. Now, he's not just being rude to his mom. You know, it's kind of rude to be like, oh, mom wants to talk to you. I'm like, she's not my mom. Like, that sounds terrible, right? But what's going on here uh, laid out in another gospel is that uh, Jesus was a controversy. And so some people saw him as a rabbi, as a messiah. Um, as, as a teacher, and other people thought he was a, a lunatic or a heretic. And at this point in their relationship, his, his mom and brothers, his father has probably passed away at this point, want to reel him in. They want to take him home because they don't support his ministry. They think that he might have, uh, he might be, you know, crazy. And so 
so Jesus starts to disconnect himself because there's times when our families represent um, something that is outside of God's will, you know? We have family that are Christian and, and really help embed some really Christian values to us, but at the same time, they have some really strong prejudices, which are totally outside of the gospel, right? So there's moments where we have to sever our beliefs and our culture from our family. And, and as a local church, that's what, that's what we strive to do. How do we redefine family in healing and redemptive ways in this space um, and as God, as our father? And how do we start to identify aspects of our family that are healthy and good and a gift to each other and represent God's kingdom values? And how do we also say, these are things my family believe. These are their scripts. And, and, but my first loyalty is to my father in heaven and this other family under other rules and cultures. And so having to leave our father and mother to follow Christ, right? It wasn't just, it wasn't probably primarily relational. Jesus isn't telling us to stop loving our parents, but it's a loyalty thing. When God's family looks different than our family of origin, he's saying choose God fam God's family first. And lastly, I want to say that if uh, it was a relationship that hurt you, then it has to be a relationship that heals you. We can't be healed. If we're hurt in relationship, we have to be healed in relationship. If we're hurt by an authority figure, it'll probably take an authority figure to heal that wound. If we're hurt by the opposite gender, it's probably the opposite gender is probably also going to be a part of our healing process at some point. And again, that's where the family of God comes in. At Renew, here are some of the core parts of how we hope to have a redemptive experience in God's family. That first, my heart is that we would continue to value and desire to be multicultural and multi-generational because different cultures have uh, different gifts and curses, right? All of our culture has aspects that are beautiful and redemptive and totally kind of display God's kingdom values and other aspects that are, that are terrible, <laughs> that are curses, that, that are anti-Christ, anti right? Or anti-biblical. Anti um, in the Asian culture, a lot of my experience of Asian culture is that we're really bad with conflicts. Either we're explosive or we just kind of like become super passive aggressive and swallow. There's like, noon uh, chi is like when you feel bitter at someone. And my mom says like, her, the way she's been taught is you just hold your noon chi, like that feeling of bitterness in your soul. And you see how long you can keep it there. And the longer you keep it there, the like stronger you become, you know, like Dragon Ball Z, that's how he powers up. He just holds that bitterness and then he just feels it, like giving him power, right? And so a lot of how we've been modeled um, conflict is, there, is that it's either swept under a rug, no one talks about it, or it's explosive. And honestly, the people who've really helped me process how to do anger well and conflict resolution well are non-Asians, right? Our people are black people and white people and Latino people, pretty much any other ethnicity has helped me to understand how to have conversation, how to deal with anger, right? 
And, um, and, and if you're a non-Asian here, that's probably going to be some of your place at Renew, is to speak into uh, this culture that doesn't know how to do conflict and to handle anger, right? But of course, Asian Americans have great gifts into, um, into the Christian community as well, right? And we're not exclusive to them, but there's this great familia and uh, communal culture that maybe some other churches, churches out, and like in two minutes, everything's clear. Like there's no one left. I was talking to someone who said, was it, uh, I forgot. I think maybe Noel and Darren. We'll just say it's them. They were saying how they visited church and they're catching up to, with someone in the courtyard. And then like 10 minutes later, they were like the only people at the church. Like the gates were locked and they had to climb over to get to their cars. That's not true, but it made for a great story. And so, um, and so there's a sense of like, hey, how, we're family. And that's an amazing gift that we could give um, to inform the body of Christ. Also, I, I would, I, I've prayed so long that our church would be multi-generational. When I was younger, I wanted like a college and young adult church only, right? I wanted like 300 college and young adults. I'm so thankful that there's families at our church. I'm thankful that there's people in their 50s and 60s and 70s at Renew. Why? Because we, we can operate um, in a limited way as family for each other, as as um, a, a mother or father, as a brother or sister um, for one another, like Irwin's being an older brother to the youth. We get to be and extend ourselves as an older brother or sister. There's parts of family that were so neglected in my home, but because of my love for the community at my home church, I was able to receive. My mom was extremely emotionally distant when I was a child. She, she was probably going through years of depression. She wasn't able to extend affection towards me. And I had some really healthy uh, female relationships where they were a sister and, you know, it wasn't um, sexual, but we were intimate. And I was able to feel cared for by them and listen to them. And, and, and they were able to emote with me, right? My guy friends in junior high, psh, Right? If, I, if they don't let me finish a story, I'll be lucky, you know? Like, if I'm sharing my sadness and they don't laugh at me, that's like the best day of my life. So the women being able to extend care and concern, again, uh, this is my experience, was really important and was an extension of family. And we get, to ha we get to have, in some ways, mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. Um, being able to live authentically with one another, um, in, in some, some cultures, you know, we, we put on an act, we present our best, and in the Christian community, we get to be broken and weak and vulnerable. I want to say that I, I hope that we get to create a healthy, again, um, male-female relationship at our church, a sibling relationship. And I know that's not always true in any church and at Renew. And so I, I do want to give uh, women especially permission if you ever feel unsafe here, please talk to our leadership team. Please talk to Kristen or Joanne or Nina or myself because I know that, um, you know, we're going to hurt each other. But especially if you feel unsafe because you feel like someone's being too aggressive um, sexually, like that's something that we take very seriously. And even if you don't think it's a big deal, like it might have been an accident or maybe their intentions weren't as bad as it came off, even if you feel like it's dumb, 
we still want to know because even if you tell me and both of us agree, okay, let's not do anything this time because it could have been an accident. If I, if I get like four or five people reporting accidents, that's going to help me to make a stronger decision to say, okay, I think we need to talk to this brother and we need to go through um, a line of, of discipline and accountability. Does that make sense? So please talk to um, our leadership team. If I make you feel uncomfortable as, as, a, as a brother in Christ or as a pastor, please tell, talk to other parts of our leadership team. You know, you don't have to go directly to me. You could talk to the Whitmores. You could talk to Dave and uh, Joanne. Uh, you could talk to Chrissy and Ken. There's no one that gets a pass at Renew, not even myself. Does that make sense? Don't, you don't have to excuse anybody. And we could all have conversations, whether they're minor or major, we want to have every kind of conversation because that's what allows us to be uh, truly brothers and sisters. And some of us come from a non-Christian background, so we really don't have a concept of a sister, right? Our only mode of interaction with, interacting with the opposite gender is sexual and flirtatious. And it takes a while to learn familia. And so that's okay. We want to give you... Um, we want to help coach you in that. And then there's going to be predators that come through Renew over the next 10 to 20 years. And we want to make sure that we expel the wolves in sheep's clothing as well. And so please, 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 um, please uh, let us know if, if that's happened in the past, over the last few years, if that's happening currently. We're, we want to be a part of that process so that we could be a family that redeems. And lastly, we hope to center our lives around Jesus and depend on him. There's limits to how we can be mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers to each other, right? There's going to be mis expectations, but it's only when we all point to Jesus that we are able to redeem family. He's the head of the church. God is the father of our family. And ultimately, any expression that is good here, we hope that you connect to the Lord because of it. Time check, anyone? Just shout it out. 11.39. Okay, perfect. Um, what redemptive part of family can I give and receive from Renew? I'm just going to allow us to pray about this, um, and I'll lead us in this time. But you're here for a purpose. God didn't accident. You didn't, even though you felt like you wandered in because of Yelp, right, and it was different than the pictures we posted. Um, <laughs> if God's called you here, it's because he has something, you're a gift to this community. Um, your gender, your ethnicity, and your life stage is to be a redemptive part of this family. And you are to receive gifts from, from us as well. You are to be a body of, we are to be a body of Christ. And so, will we, hi, I think, what a gift, what a gift. <laughs> Babies are a gift. There was a membership class where everyone's new or a welcome lunch. And I was like, everyone, smell my baby's head. Because I just was so proud of Liam, my firstborn, and his head smelled like caramel. And so they all, everyone lined up and smelled his head. It was great. And then they became a part of our church, and they stayed forever. God, we're just really thankful for Renew. Um, we're not perfect, for sure, but you are perfect. Our Father is perfect. The one creating, sustaining, and shaping our family is perfect. And we get to depend and point to you and, 
and we get to link arms with each other to have redemptive experiences of seeing maybe a healthy couple fight and like, oh, that's what a good fight looks like. Cool. Or, you know, uh, emotions expressed and um, hard conversations had and forgiveness being given and being extended to us. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to shape and protect our family and that you would be uh, Lord over it. Uh, we love you so much. And we know that our parents, almost all of our parents tried their best. You know, uh, as a father, man, I know I'm going to do damage to my kids. And I know I'm going to try my hardest to love them. And I also know I pray and want a community to be an extended family that shapes them and pours into them in the places where I'm vacant and weak. And I pray that for all of us. We're, we're so thankful for you. And would you walk us backward into our past? Hold our hands. Let us see you there. And let us experience family in a different way, in the way we need it most. In Jesus' name.